Welcome to episode 18 of the Stretch 4 Podcast. I am your host, Matt Parker. We do this show once a week. Some weeks we have interviews, some weeks we just recap a lot of my personal story as a Silicon Valley entrepreneur and venture-backed startup founder living in San Francisco. This week's show, I'm going to recap my performance on the SF Half Marathon, which I ran this past weekend here in San Francisco, and we are having remarkably surprising weather. So I think that really did help me with my performance. Didn't hit my full goal, but I feel like I got within a range that I feel very strong and confident about as I become now a hybrid athlete who focuses on running and weight training. Also, we'll unpack Bolt going bust. Bolt, a company that we've referenced here on the Stretch 4 Media platform on my newsletter. I'm a very, very outgoing founder, Ryan Breslow, has been past kind of 18 months, very notorious for tweet storms and having very, very controversial takes around the Silicon Valley zeitgeist and ecosystem, which we cover a lot on the podcast. This past week, the information reported that the company was currently being sued by previous investors who we've also referenced on the podcast, Tribe Capital, along with Activant Capital, related to some misingenuous or disingenuous information that was reported by, by Bolt on their financials for their Series D round of funding, which was roughly around $355 million that they raised at the end of 2021, and additionally related to a $30 million personal loan that Ryan Bleslow was awarded with during that financing. So unpacking the details, what does it all mean? Again, I have this thesis that the world of being a venture-backed startup founder will become more challenging while companies will still raise money and companies will still be successful with a very, very constrained IPO market. A lot of more diligence, I think, is going to be applied to deals. And so I want to unpack that. And people like Ryan Breslow and companies like Bolt are, for the good or bad of this ecosystem, having an impact on how founders are getting liquidity and how employees are getting liquidity. Uh, so we'll talk a bit about that. And then I'll also talk a bit about fundraising right now, what it's going to look like in the coming months. There's a lot of mixed reviews out there around how founders should be thinking about going out to raise round, where you're, whether you're raising a down round, a bridge round, an up round, or a brand new round. We're going to unpack that. So Power Pack Show today, marathon stuff, a little bit on Bolt, and then some fundraising right now, principles and tactics that we think are going to be really important for founders that are looking to raise money. Hope you guys enjoyed the show and hope you also enjoyed last week's show with Dan Miller, who I actually ran into on the uh, half marathon. Dan is also an avid runner and he performed fairly well in that coast, but it was good to run into a stress for community previous interviewee in the wild and his company that he's building has a strong alignment with health and wellness. So I wasn't surprised to see him out competing in the half marathon. So shout out to Dan Miller, check out episode 17. Let's get into the show. Of the week in the startup founder world, we talk about a reference that actually was made on the Stretch Forward newsletter way back in November of 2022. If you don't remember, if you read the newsletter, you can check it out. It'll be linked in the show notes. But we talked a bit about how the I made this tweet 
went a little viral related to Tribe Capital, who was who's an investor here, a very data driven investor here in Silicon Valley, invested in both Pipe at the seed stage, FTX at the Series A stage for the FTX USA business, as well as Bolt in every round of sequential financing. That became very relevant this past week when the information, which is a a premium news uh, site that I subscribe to, very much focused on the tech and Silicon Valley ecosystem. And so the information actually reported last week on Bolt of all companies. And the reporting for Bolt was related to the founder. And the story is that Bolt is now being probed by the SEC, Security Exchange Commission, over investors who say that they were overstating their financials at the time they raised money back in 2021. So they raised a $355 million round of Series E financing, and the company was valued at $11 billion in late 2021. The shareholders now, which are the Tribe Capital team, they are seeking to investigate corporate wrongdoing by both Ryan Breslow, the CEO, founder or former CEO and founder of Bolt, as well as the company board. It's said that the SEC was investigating whether federal securities law had been violated in connection with the statements made by Bolt while he was raising money. So what that really means is Breslow and his team, the board, were putting together fundraising documents and now... Tribe Capital, along with another investor listed in the complaint, are saying that they lied about the actual financials of the company. And Bolt has actually removed these investors from their board, effective of March 2023. So now they're coming back and saying, you all lied about this and we want some form of clawback. I'm assuming Westcap Management and Arjun Sethi, who actually responded to my tweet, shout out to Arjun, when I made that tweet back in November, as it related to Bolt. Because I, at this point, as a founder myself, you know, I don't have a lot of intel on this company, but I do remember being at a pitch presentation, probably circa 2018, where the other founder, who's no longer with the company even at that point, was really telling us how to raise money in Silicon Valley. And some of those insights were good, where I think, you know, understanding how to price your round, put your round together, how to communicate with investors. But there were a lot of things that he was saying at that meeting that I was like, wow, is this really how you do it? Pretty much he was saying like, you should lie to your you know, prospective investors about everything that you don't have to like really reveal to create hype and FOMO around your deal. And this was coming from someone who started this Bolt company. And so that was my first experience with understanding Bolt. Again, not judging him, but he was just doing a presentation. It was kind of behind the scenes. And so I always wondered about the company because they, they at that point, hadn't really built up a lot of press. Uh, they weren't really outspoken about what they were doing, but they were a company that a lot of Silicon Valley really, really thought was a, you know, a, a big company. And Bolt, you know, what they do is, you know, they were e-commerce payment solutions company. So every other business that's not on Amazon, they want to help you collect payments and run a online e-commerce business with the power and tools that Amazon has, but you could do that white label. So, you know, you think about Shopify, which is similarly doing that, which is one of the other reasons I never really understood why Bolt was really going to be a big business. But that was their whole thesis. And Brian Breslow, very charismatic guy, 
he was really not on the scene, I would say, in Silicon Valley for like maybe the first couple years I had heard of the company, right? Like he didn't do a lot of public speaking, at least from my knowledge, but he really came on the scene with these tweet storms. I guess they started really around 2022 or right around the time he was raising the money right after coming out of raising the big round. So he raised a big round of funding and then he goes really, really big on Twitter. As a ghostwriter, he's writing all these kind of quasi interesting tweets, very entertaining from a founder perspective. I mean, he picked fights against Stripe. He picks fights against Sequoia and a lot of the big dogs here in Silicon Valley, kind of pitching that he was an outsider and all these companies were trying to essentially overtake him, right? And all these kind of like boiler room stories to get engagement on Twitter. And he raises this big round of funding at the end of 2021. If you remember 2021, a lot of money was raised during that year. Markets were high. So they raised really at the peak of the bubble. And what we're seeing is a lot of these deals become unraveled towards the back end because right after they raised that money, their economics and revenue go down. Brian essentially lead, Ryan essentially leaves the company and you see the backlash here. So you have Brian Rankin at Westcap Management and Arjun Sethi at Tribe Capital. They say that Ryan misled investors on that round. And then additionally, if that's not enough, also Steve Saracino, who is the Activant Capital founder, is making allegations towards a $30 million personal loan to Breslow that the company guaranteed, which is super fascinating when you think about secondaries and how founders get liquidity. You know, you rate, you know, say you have a company and how it works in Silicon Valley. Most companies are not public, so they're not liquid. The stock is not worth anything in paper. But if you are a select elite founder with great negotiating skills, and very high performing and highly competitive rounds of financing, you can barter both secondaries where you're able to sell some of your founder shares off the cuff to investors. Sometimes you might open that up for uh, your employees. Stripe is at the top of this where they just raised, I think, six and a half billion dollars totally dedicated for current employees of the company over the past 12 years of the business that could sell their stock. In this case, what you see Ryan do is he negotiated a $30 million personal loan with JP Morgan. So this more, this falls more into the line of something like Adam and Newman with what the relationship he built with WeWork, where he was able to get very, very large uh, personal loans with very, very competitive interest rates. And the collateral that they take in those loans is the equity. So you generally don't have to sell your equity. You just get a loan from the bank in many cases and it's backed up by your business or by your stock. In this case, Ryan was able to get it collateralized by the company. So basically, he said that the company is going to guarantee this loan, not even his stock. So, he, you know, these are very, very strong negotiating tactics. And, you know, this guy clearly had, you know, an advantage on these investors. And now these investors are coming back and suing because guess what? He defaulted on the loan, of course. Because the company, as we found out, wasn't really making any money, <laughs> is severely in the negative, and Ryan is no longer the CEO. So he's pretty much passed on the baton to the current management. He's still on the board, but he, in essentially, in a way, what he did was he used the company as his personal piggy bank. Now, as a founder myself, 
there, these stories kind of can read very, very negatively of the founder, but we have to understand these are very sophisticated investors. They are managing LP capital. If you think about it, I mean, Westcap management, they're managing probably several hundred millions of dollars in, in AUM. Tribe Capital is managing a billion, multi-billions of dollars in AUM and Activant Capital, the same. So there's not really like a world where these sophisticated investors are in a position where I'm going to feel sorry for them for making these decisions. But in the world that we live in as a founder, when you have folks like Brian that are very outspoken, and now we see are tapping into uh, pools of capital to liquidate themselves and get loans and make these big purchases, when things go well, it's okay, right? If Bolt becomes a public company at $10 billion and exit, none of this really gets to the top of the zeitgeist. But because we see that they raised $355 million at an $11 billion valuation in 2021, my expectation is that this company is probably worth less than a billion dollars right now. And now you have investors who are probably very much in the red on this investment and likely have already written it off, but they're so hurt by how they felt like they were treated by the founder. They're now going to sue through the SEC to make these claims to essentially try to potentially, you know, seek punishment for Ryan. And it's going to be an interesting story to follow. I don't think it's the end of it, but this was something that I wanted to follow up on, just showing, you know, you if you subscribe to the Subchat newsletter, we try to catch these things a bit early. And as they become ongoing stories, we can always come back. But I say the learning is if you're a founder, you have to really think about how you portray your company to investors even more than you have in the past. Because I think now folks are going to start to look back on how companies portray themselves as they go out of business or can't raise money to ask these questions. It's a very interesting story to follow, the bulk story along with Ryan Breslow. And we'll continue to cover it here at the Stretch Four Media Podcast Newsletter segment. Recapping my weekend spent here in San Francisco where I ran the SF Half Marathon for the first time. I ran a competitive race. Running has something that has been something that has become a part of my life. I really think I map it back to the pandemic. I was just listening to an interesting podcast from a fitness enthusiast, and he was talking about this hybrid athlete concept and where it kind of came from. And his whole point was that it's not really an evolution or it's not really a revolution. It's an evolution of what has transpired in the past five years, give or take. You know, you think about pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. And I remember for myself, you know, I was always a person who hated running all, even dating back to my basketball days where we had to go run, you know, sprints around the track at 6 a.m. for time. And I think I probably got to, I was doing, you know, at one point I could do like a seven minute mile, but in my late twenties and early thirties, running was something that I maybe would play around with, but it was never something I was serious about. But I do remember the pandemic being in that position that many of us were, where we couldn't go to gyms. We really couldn't even interact with anyone. But, you know, running was something that you could do. You know, everybody could run. You could go outside at the point, the, the peak pandemic. And so I think that's where I kind of dis- established some form of like liking towards running and just you could easily measure yourself. 
you could see how fast you're moving. You could see where your heart rates are. You have the cardiovascular impact. And so that's kind of where it started to pick up. And over the past, I guess, 18 months, I've started to think more competitively about my running. And actually, you know, what that looks like for me is really it's about really three three primary things that I'm thinking about is what is my mile, what does my average mile look like? How do I prepare my body? How do I feel post-run? Like recording this podcast post a marathon, my legs don't feel that great. But what are what what's there? Where is the soreness coming from? Where is the soreness strong? Where is it where is it not so strong? And then also, you know, the competitive spirit of running. And I think I got this from someone who ran the, a marathon yesterday was like, when you think about these marathons, you think about running gradual pace to get started. And we can get into the run, but like, you know, my pace, I'm still not at the able to really, at least yet in my running experience, be able to time myself properly. I think, you know, you want to start off the pace slow in that 10 minute to nine minute mile range, probably even for the first couple miles. And then you want to be able to get some velocity and pick up your pace a bit. And then you, but you also want to be able to conserve for that last, like running a half marathon, which is 13.1 miles. I ran out of gas probably around mile 10 or 11, where I just was struggling and my miles dropped and my times dropped. And that's kind of really where, where it hit, where things started to unravel for me a bit. I was able to complete the race in two hours and nine minutes, average pace around nine minute and 53 second mile. So under 10, but not in my nine, 9.05 to 9.30 range where I'd like to be. But really just understanding the dynamics of how your body feels and how you prepare really is the reasons I got into running more so. And I, I plan to continue to do it. I want to try to keep a cadence of doing maybe a half marathon twice a year, maybe selecting some half marathons that are either here in the California area where there's a lot of great running experiences, but also taking on the road a bit. But it was very cool to be out there running with some very, very high you know, strong high performers. We had a great weekend of weather in the Bay Area, which we've had actually for the past two weekends. I've been in the Bay Area, specifically San Francisco, for six years, and we've never really, I can never really remember sunny 70 degree weekends. And we've had a couple of those in the past weekend. So it was a great weather. The, 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 there was no wind. I will say the SF half marathon second half is very difficult when you think of incline. I think the incline reached the peak of around 730 feet. So there were gradual hills that just kind of hit you, you know, when you get into that eight, nine, 10 mile range, and then you get get this incline, it kind of takes a toll on you. So I think that a lot of that for me is just performing and working on leg strength and endurance when I go through that for my next run. And just kind of learning about yourself, learning about your body. As I get older, I think also another reason I picked up running, obviously coming out of the pandemic, we saw so many people that were much more susceptible to, you know, the disease if they were overweight. And so weight management is something that I try to think about. So I ended up running the race around 248. My goal was to be in the 230 range. So got some work to do there. That's really kitchen work, dieting, drinking, kind of curbing those those appetites for those things to, really to prepare to, to be lighter on my feet for the next competitive run. But overall, a great run wife and son came out to support. Another one of my good friends here in the Bay Area, Curtis, came out to support me at the beginning and the end of the run. He's a very, he's into this stuff. He's done the David Goggins 4x4 challenge. So there's there's a, there's a few people that are very, very influential in my life to try to keep me on, on course. And actually last week's episode where I featured Dan Miller, didn't know he was running the half marathon, but you know, ran into him when we were down getting ready to run. And, you know, he had a very strong performance 
in that 145 to 148 range. So very, very uh, good experience. I definitely think I'll be running more marathons or half marathons. <laughs> Don't plan to be running ultra marathons or full marathons anytime soon. But the 13.1 mile run is something I think I can improve upon as far as my time. So if you're a runner, if you're into running, love to talk to you, love to build more community around running. I think it's very taboo, but I think now with the the way we experience COVID, there are a lot more people that are running than probably were running prior to COVID. And I think running is something that will continue to evolve as something that we as humans have done since the beginning of time. And with the technology and the improvements in the shoes and sneakers and recovery and all the health and wellness stuff, I think it's gonna be something that we continue to do until the end of time. So lastly, on today's episode, episode 18, I wanted to recap a post that I actually thought was interesting as many founders in my network, as well as in other areas are getting, you know, in the fundraising mode as people are kind of starting to think about what does fundraising look like? How should I model my round? How should I think about my round? Well, there was a post brought to mention about a week ago from Adam Hardjedge, who's the head of private markets at Stonks. Stonks is an investor platform kind of built for Gen Z, almost like trying to build a hybrid Carta type angelist platform for Gen Z, kind of the way I think about it. Uh, and, and Adam writes the newsletter. He sold his company to Stonks and he writes the newsletter. And he really got into unpacking something that I've thought about in past fundraising rounds where Stonks has this product called their access fund and it's for YC particularly. So they essentially raise money and they specifically deploy it into different batches of YC. And so he's kind of sets this up in the structure. And this is kind of how you want to generally think about fundraising venture capital. Like this is specific to venture capital. You know, someone else probably better than me can describe how it works with private equity, but this is really how it works. So YC, and this is again primarily early stage, fundraising happens, you know, really year round, but there are hot spots to where there are much more deal action happening in a certain seasons of the year. So Adam talks about YC's demo day, which takes place in early September. And what you start to see now is companies, you know, here in July, late July, early August, companies are pushing off on investor conversations. They're, they'll tell you that their head's down building. They're not focused on fundraising. And then this is kind of how YC builds that FOMO is if you reach out to them after that demo day, there's a very high level chance that these deals are already complete. There's no more room left for allocation. So really it is, you know, the building and his his premises from an investor mindset is research in July, deploy in August and wrap up in September. And I think there's a similar framework for founders is you should be preparing in July, you should be meeting in August and you should be closing in September, October. So how do you do that as a founder? Well, you should be at a point where you'll reach a stopping point where you're building, 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 and you're getting getting data and getting insights into kind of what you want to do from a fundraising perspective. At some point, the light bulb has to come on that you need to start to put together kind of a feeler teaser deck that you want to send out to say maybe 100 investors, maybe more. In this case, in this current climate of market, I probably would target or, you know, really inclusively with modern tax, you know, we're probably going to target 250 investors in August. And what I mean by target is maybe there are inroads for investment 
introductions. A portion of those will be cold. Another portion of those will be people that you've kind of kept tabs with over the time. Again, it's very hard to keep tabs with a lot of investors throughout you know, the June and July months, specifically now because we're coming off the pandemic and many investors who've built up travel time over the course of the years when you couldn't travel or all travel. They're probably out raising funds for their their new funds. They're traveling. They're taking vacations. So June and July is pretty dead for investor meetings. So you want to use those months to really prepare your mind for what will probably be a very active and very busy August. But you want to set up those meetings sequentially. So one thing that I've thought about, and you use the YC framework, is YC works well for the whole ecosystem, right? And one way for YC, obviously, because they give you this synthesis of the YC deals are better, better chance to raise money. But if you're not a YC company and you're in the Bay Area in particular, you know that a lot of investors are going to be kind of in and active and coming in and out of SF between the August, September, October months. That's really the, the, the hot months of fundraising is you really have a three-month window to do your meetings get get term sheets, get your nose, and try to get the funding. So you really have August, September, October, November, December, kind of just like June and July, very, very light deal flow. Folks are heading out for holidays. Folks are closing down, winding down the year, and folks are starting to plan for the future. So you really have a three-month hotspot to get ready. So I would say if you are a founder and you're going in as an early-stage founder, you're doing a pre-seed, you're doing an accelerator, you're going to your seed round, really, really important to spend July and early August prepping and booking meetings because again, to get 250 meetings, if that's what you need to hit to get it to get to close around, that's a lot of work. That might take a thousand outreach points to get those meetings. But you want to get those meetings. You want to have a feeler deck at least ready when you book those meetings. And then you maybe want to have a more in detail deck by the time that meeting comes around. You want to run through that. You want to almost run through it like a presentation and, and go through every investor pitch, have all your questions, all your FAQs, give access to your demo. It's one thing we're working on right now is want to be in a demonstration environment right away, right? Being able to go through the demo live with each investor, which can give you very good feedback on your process and your product and your use cases, and then really gives the investor a lot of insights into how your product's working, if it's working, who the customers are, that it's working. That's the real big signal that you want to give is that we have this working product that customers are using, whether it be a lot of customers or not, the fact is that it's working and you want to be able to get that product out the door. So happy to to do to dive deeper into this. Hopefully I'll get something up on the newsletter about this approach, but it is very important because there is a three-month window to raise funding. And we do think, you know, at least I do think, and most people that I'm in contact with, it's going to be a very busy fall for fundraising. There's going to be a lot of investors that are looking to deploy capital. The round sizes are going to be different. The round valuations are going to be different. The diligence processes are going to be different. But the capital is going to get deployed because it has to. So think a lot about your preparation time. Make sure you're running through that pitch with multiple people. Make sure you're running through that demo with multiple people because raising uh, this quarter is going to be very important for critical for a lot of startups that want to survive. But that's all I got this week. Again, check back next week. We got more interviews coming up with founders. We'll get into fundraising and some of those interviews. Folks you know, generally try to interview founders that have raised 
10, 15, 20 plus million dollars in venture capital. We're doing this for their second or third time. And they really, we really, at this podcast on this platform, we try to get into the business of being a venture back founder, not necessarily just the product stuff, but understanding how you need to approach your life, how you need to approach your wellness, how do you approach your personal bank account as you kind of try to go out here and build, uh, build a unicorn or decacorn. So thanks a lot for listening to the Stretch 4 podcast. You can find out more about us at stretch4.substack.com. I'm Matt Parker, your host, also founder, CEO of Modern Tax. I'm out.